Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. In the 11 days since the Taliban returned to power in Afghanistan, the United States and its allies have evacuated more than 104,000 Americans, allied citizens, and Afghans from Kabul, an extraordinary achievement and a testament to U.S. military power. But since the mission began, U.S. officials had worried about a major terror attack that unfortunately came yesterday by the ISIS-K group, killing 13 Americans, wounding another 18, and killing at least 60 Afghans, and wounding many, many more. For the record, yesterday's terror attack was aimed as much at America as it was against the Taliban. ISIS-K thinks the Taliban are too soft, and the Taliban can't stand ISIS-K. Biden has vowed retaliation, and Washington has positioned considerable firepower across the region in case it's needed should other incidents happen. America's close allies have expressed annoyance at Washington for not extending the August 31 departure of U.S. forces, saying they don't have enough time to withdraw their own nationals. The Germans and the Dutch are already out. Biden, however, wants to keep the withdrawal on track to expand a working relationship Washington has built with the Taliban. They can lead in Kabul, but in exchange for continued international aid that's been suspended, the Taliban must be inclusive and keep a lid on international terror groups. Back in Washington, Biden is getting hammered by both parties for his decision making as Republicans in particular, including those who supported President Trump's own rapid withdrawal from Afghanistan, have changed course and blast Biden for leaving as their president had agreed to do in February 2020. Meanwhile, the defense budget moves along as the Biden administration internally works to refocus U.S. attention on China, a focus that will be evident, sources say, in the next multi-year budget plan out next year. And Naftali Bennett is on his first visit to Washington since becoming Israel's prime minister meeting today with President Biden to discuss Iran and much more. Joining us to discuss all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin of the Hudson Institute, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, our very own producer, Chris Cervello, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, now with the Center for a New American Security, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who among his many affiliations is with the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And check out our weekly Cavus Ships podcast with our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who take a deep, deep dive into naval issues. Our naval coverage is sponsored by Fincantieri Marinette Marine and Huntington Ingalls Industries and GE Marine, sponsored our coverage of the Navy League's recent Sea Airspace Conference and uh, trade show. And uh, again, before we get started, another important note, the National Defense Industrial Association is among the groups that are helping companies get their Afghan employees out of harm's way. Go to NDIA.org for more information. Iron Mike Hurston, welcome back. You're tanned, rested, uh, and back in battery. First, walk us through a lot of activity on the Hill. Obviously, infrastructure uh, lurching ahead. A big victory for Nancy Pelosi, certainly in the House, to get her caucus aboard uh, to do this despite their suspicions. All eyes are on the Senate uh, and how this is going to play out there. And then meanwhile, the House Armed Services Committee Chairman uh, Adam Smith has produced his markup that also includes a dozen more uh, F-18 fighters, a program that is seen by some as a bellwether, whether or not the administration and Congress are serious about making the sort of tectonic changes we need to make. Um, the conclusion by some is this indicates 
not so much change. Anyway, walk us through where uh, we find ourselves and where we're going. Sure. So as you recall, at the end of July, uh, the Senate passed uh, the budget resolution, uh, which unlocks the reconciliation process for uh, Biden's American Families Plan, which is a $3.5 trillion uh, reconciliation package. And they also did pass the bipartisan uh, infrastructure package, just over a trillion dollars. So Pelosi said that she was going to call the House back into session early, which would be uh, earlier this week, uh, to vote on the budget resolution, but not the bipartisan uh, infrastructure plan. So last week, uh, prior to the House coming in, uh, a group of nine moderates sent Pelosi a letter saying that they would not support the budget resolution unless there was a vote on the bipartisan plan. And it was kind of a, you know, a game of chicken. And on Tuesday night, they uh, struck a deal where they would vote on the budget resolution by uh, embedding it into the rule. And then Pelosi would give them a date certain that they would vote on the bipartisan infrastructure plan. And that date certain is uh, September 27th. Um, however, uh, the progressives have come out and said that they will not vote uh, for the bipartisan infrastructure plan unless there is first a vote on the $3.5 trillion uh, reconciliation bill. So even though there seems to be a deal in place, there's a lot of ways that this deal uh, can unravel. Um, now also, the progressives feel that they extracted another concession, which really has not gotten a lot of publicity, that the bill has to be written in such a way where it will pass the Senate. Uh, so you know, what does that really mean at the end of the day? I mean, the uh, Manchin and Sinema have already said that they won't support $3.5 trillion, uh, but Bernie Sanders is now on the road saying that that's as low as they can go, and he's out there uh, touring the country trying to get support for that. And the progressives in the House are unlikely to vote for anything that's less than that. And they would want the vote on the $3.5 trillion bill to come first because they're concerned that the moderates would vote for the bipartisan bill and then bail on the larger package. So this is far uh, from a done deal. And I've been saying all along that I think that this whole thing is gonna unravel. Uh, you know, the speaker has set a deadline of September 15th to have the um, reconciliation package ready. That's just over two weeks. I don't see how uh, they can possibly put that together by then. And September is just going to be a mess uh, on the Hill. I mean, they're only in session for two weeks and they not only have put all this reconciliation uh, package on their plate in addition to the uh, bipartisan bill, but um, government funding runs out. So they're going to have to pass the CR. Uh, they may have to deal with the debt limit and put the debt limit on the CR. Uh, federal unemployment benefits, the enhanced unemployment benefits expire, and there will be many progressives that want to extend those. Uh, in addition, the federal highway program authorization expires. Uh, the authorization for temporary assistance for needy families uh, expires at the end of September, and increased benefits uh, for food stamps expires at the end of September. And now we saw last night the Supreme Court strike right. down uh, the eviction moratorium. So there'll be pressure for Congress to deal with that in September. And we need floor time for NDAA in September as well. So I just don't see how all this happens. Uh, I think we're going to, I think the infrastructure will be punted uh, in, into October. And I think that there's no way they can get everything done that they say they want to get done. And I think we'll start hearing talk soon of possibility of a government shutdown, especially if they're going to put the debt ceiling uh, into the into the CR.
And and uh, talk to us about the chairman's mark and what that tells us about where we're going and what we expect to see, right? I mean, he's somebody who has very articulately talked about the fact we're not on the right course, we're not doing the right kinds of things. Uh, he has been critical of the F-35 program. That's, uh, you know, uh, a matter of record. Uh, where where are we and what did you take from it? And Dove, I want to get your sense and the team's sense on where we are budgetary and politically, because this whole Afghanistan uh, situation certainly does play into that. And I want to get to that in a moment. The chairman's mark was released um, on Wednesday and the full committee mark will be uh, the following Wednesday, next week, September 1st. And I think in the meantime, we'll see about 700 amendments uh, getting filed uh, to the bill. Uh, not all of those will be considered, but there will be a lot of amendments filed. But there's still some big unknowns here because yes, we've seen uh, the confines of the bill, but uh, Mike Rogers is working on an amendment to that bill to add $25 billion in spending, very similar to what we saw the Senate Armed Services Committee do and what we expect the Senate Appropriations Committee to do. And I, I, from what I understand, that amendment is not just going to focus on programs that are on the UFRA list, but they're going to try and use that money to try and fix problems and address vulnerabilities of systems and platforms like uh, carriers, satellites, things like that. Plus, uh, I know we're going to talk about Afghanistan in a minute, but the, there is extra money to play with there as well, because there is there was three point three billion dollars in the budget request uh, to train and equip the Afghan army, air force and national police, which now uh, that money can be used for other things. Now, will that money be used you know, exclusively for counterterrorism efforts or can that also be used uh, for platforms as well? So there's still you know, a lot of uh, unknowns here. And I think that. Uh, the the uh, House Armed Services Committee is in a unique position compared to the other committees to try and uh, reshape the debate. And Michael, before uh, we, we go to the rest of the panel, give us a quick take on how Afghanistan certainly is is playing out. It's a hot topic uh, on the Hill. Uh, what's clear is there was a miscalculation, not just by us, but our, our allies. Talk to a number of our allies all had the same thing to say. We thought the Afghan government would hold out. In fact, they also point out that Ashraf Ghani asked us not to precipitously withdraw our diplomats and people, which is the reason why everybody uh, got uh, caught out. Uh, then you had two House members, Seth Moulton and, and Tom Mayer, uh, visiting Kabul uh, for their 24-hour fact-finding trip. That tended to irritate people as well. And there's this sense that actually the American people might not care as much about Afghanistan. The question is whether it reflects badly on uh, the president and whether it dooms him or damages him gravely politically going into 22, certainly in the, in the House and the Senate, where the margins are razor thin. What are members telling you and, and where, where are we going and what's the political damage going to be? Well, I think you're, you're, the point you made at the end is, is correct. I think that this damages him greatly uh, on Capitol Hill and imperils his agenda because it uh, really limits uh, his influence. And as you correctly pointed out, he's getting uh, criticized from both sides, from both Democrats uh, and Republicans. And, you know, he really didn't respond uh, to a lot of uh, requests from folks on the Hill, you know, months, two months, three months ago, to start talking about Afghanistan. And he missed the opportunity, I think, to involve uh, Congress in this process and to gain allies in advance of this withdrawal. Um, so look, obviously there's a lot of hypocrisy here with a lot of the Republicans uh, saying things would have been different uh, if we had Trump as president. Uh, well, we'll never know because Trump isn't president, but um, maybe things could have been worse. We could have pulled out uh, earlier. And I think it's fair to argue that under the Trump administration, there wouldn't be much focus on getting our Afghan allies um, out. The Afghans have helped us. I mean, we've seen 
Trump released statements recently uh, referring to those people that we are getting out as, as terrorists and that we imply that we're bringing terrorists into this country, into other countries, because we're not betting these people as, as they come out. So, you know, there's a lot of finger pointing, uh, but there's a lot of um, I think it's really going to hurt uh, him politically on the Hill. But I think you, know, you mentioned uh, the trip by Moulton and, and uh, Meyer over there. And I don't think that trip was as bad as people uh, make it out to be. Um, you know, there's been a lot of frustration on the Hill from members feeling they're not getting the full story. I, I've had several members call me or their staffs call me uh, asking me to try and connect them with ambassadors in the region to get their take on what's going on because they're not trusting the take uh, that they're getting uh, from our government. I mean, I mean, Moulton's folks and, and Myers folks you know, in the statement said they were either receiving outdated, inaccurate or irrelevant uh, information. They felt it was necessary for them to see things uh, in person. Uh, and they flew commercially over there, and they, when they did get there, they flew on an allied uh, aircraft and didn't take up any, any space. And in the end, this was probably a good thing for Biden because uh, both of the lawmakers said it changed their mind about the August 31st deadline that they had previously urged the administration to extend. Now they don't think we should extend. We should get out by the 31st. Uh, they felt that the military had uh, turned uh, scenes of utter chaos into an orderly evacuation. And uh, they came out saying that they believe that, it, that the U.S. needs to have a working relationship uh, with the Taliban after the U.S. departure. So in the end, uh, that, that trip ended up being, I think, a, a positive uh, trip for, for Biden. Now, you know, McCarthy is calling on the House to come back in, into session um, to uh, vote on legislation to bar the withdrawal of U.S. troops. I mean, that's all rhetoric because Pelosi controls that and Pelosi is not going to do that. And obviously, you know, it tied the commander in chief's hands. Uh, and and but I will give McCarthy credit. He is pushing back on a lot of Republicans who are calling for the impeachment of Joe Biden uh, as, as a result of this. So, you know, I, and, and, you know, we've seen a lot of activity from Mike Rogers, uh, who is the you know ranking member of Armed Services, you know, putting out a lot of statements. I think he's put out something like 16 statements so far uh, on this uh, in August. You know, pretty hitting Biden pretty hard, you know, saying that Biden should be solely responsible. Uh, he's ignoring the reality, you know, referring this as a disaster, a dire situation, criticizing the lack of a plan. Uh, and like the news cycle on this is not going away, especially with the anniversary of 9-11 coming up. So this is um, a real problem for the president uh, on Capitol Hill. Uh, Dove, I want to bring you into the conversation on this. It's been a while uh, since we've had one of Michael's uh, fulsome sort of descriptions on what's going on up on uh, up on the Hill. Um, is the president very gravely damaged from your uh, standpoint? Right. Because we have a tendency in Washington of saying like, oh, my God, that's the end. And there's a lot of gnashing of teeth and rending of garments. And it ends up not being as protracted uh, a problem. And every once in a while, there's a challenge and problem that you have to work through. And more broadly, uh, you know, he's been very careful not to use the word trust, but he is a real politique operator. And America has allied with unsavory regimes in the past. And whether anybody likes it or not, the Taliban are in charge in Kabul and Washington and the world will have to deal with them. And he has since the very beginning talked about mutual interest dictating what could be a productive relationship. And he has said they can have their state. But what they have to do is make sure that it is not brutal and it's inclusive and also help us fight terrorism. And in this sense, the Taliban and Washington are united in being opposed to ISIS-K, right? So is this actually sound strategy and the whole notion of get out on the 31st, build a little bit of trust, and then have them help us get people out? How do you see this entire dynamic situation? Well, it, it all sounds very good. Um, but remember... Uh, if you look at the original deal, the ter what I consider to have been a terrible deal that Trump negotiated, the, uh, these promises by the Taliban were already made a year ago. 
uh, the Taliban uh, did not keep its promise because already it's broken it because the Haqqani, uh, the nephew of the original Haqqani organizer, uh, which, by the way, according to H.R. McMaster, who used to work uh, all the contacts inside Afghanistan. I remember going out there when he was, a, I think, a two star or a one star. And that was his job to look at the connections. He says that the Haqqani network is connected to ISIS-K. We all know that uh, the Haqqani network is connected to Al-Qaeda. And those guys do not want to limit themselves to Afghanistan. And they're in the government with the Taliban. So I'm not sure the Taliban is being straightforward with us. I think for the moment, uh, sure, we should cooperate with them until we get all our people out. Let me jump back before I continue on that score to uh, what Michael said about, particularly about the budget. Um, one of the interesting things that I'm looking out for is, you know, the, in addition to that three odd billion uh, that's in the, the next budget uh, for Afghanistan that's going to be reallocated, there's about six billion right now that could be reallocated. And I'd be very interesting to see how the administration reallocates this. And the reason I say that is that I've been in touch with people as wide as Singapore, India, uh, Britain, Germany, and I don't care what an administration spokesman says, these folks are very, very suspicious of how reliable we are. Israel is another one. And, uh, and if Israel's suspicious, all the Arabs are going to be suspicious. They always follow Israel's lead in terms of how it relates to the United States. What that means is that we have a lot of climbing out of that hole to do. And Mr. Biden has justified his decision to get out what he has not addressed in any degree of to any degree of clarity is why he did not, as soon as uh, he had decided when the date was gonna be, start working to get people out. His argument that, oh, well, I trusted Ashraf Ghani. We knew that Ghani was weak. We knew that his government was corrupt. None of this is news. Why did we believe Ghani on this one thing? Why did we give in to him? Biden hasn't addressed any of that. And I think that will hurt him. Now, of course, there are a lot of Republicans who are hypocritical, but there are a lot of other Republicans who are very, very serious about the fact that we messed this up. There's no denying it was a disaster. When the president says, oh, this is the greatest uh, relief effort ever. Well, you know, Dunkirk was three times as large. Yeah, it's this kind of uh, misplaced hyperbole that doesn't help him. And so if you put overlay that, with what Mike was saying about all the other legislation, it just seems to me that his credibility has been hurt. We know that he's falling down in the polls. It's not so much that Americans didn't want to get out of Afghanistan, but Americans don't want America to look bad. And right now we're looking bad. And to say, well, you know, it's, it's ISIS-K. We don't even know if it's ISIS-K. It's convenient to say that because we've never uh, sanctioned the Taliban, but we have sanctioned the Haqqani network. So if we're going to work with that government, we're working with people that we sanction. I think that's something that we need to think through very, very carefully. And finally, uh, on the six billion, on the three billion and on the 25 billion, it's going to be very interesting to see whether the administration and Congress are very serious about uh, changing the direction in which we are strategizing, programming and planning. Uh, I've argued on this program over and over again that uh, it was a huge mistake to cut back
initiative. And now, especially if we want to reinforce some degree of credibility with those guys, we ought to plus that up. It was a mistake to start to play games with what we call the Pacific Deterrence Initiative, where money that we were going to spend anyway, we now call Pacific Deterrence Initiative. Again, if we want to have more credibility with allies that are uneasy about us right now, we should take some of that money, whether it's the additional part of the additional 25 or even some of the six and the three plus and put it into PDI and EDI and then turn around to our allies and say, hey, look, no, we're really serious about working with you. Afghanistan was a completely different issue. Um, and I should point out uh, to the audience that your piece uh, about uh, corruption, corruption destroyed Afghanistan, but it's not unique to that country, uh, appeared today uh, in the Hill. And and that's something we've discussed uh, here as well, right? I mean, there's you know, how, how many American politicians are in jail for corruption as well? And we've been at this uh, for uh, for a long time, although although it is it is different uh, uh, corruption and we have a, a great tendency of, of legalizing it, uh, actually, like most uh, civilized countries. A word from our sponsors, our technology coverage is sponsored by General Motors Defense and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all domain command and control. Uh, everybody has been waiting very patiently. And so have you, Jim, uh, allies uh, and partners are not happy. Emmanuel Macron, the French president, saying that August 31 isn't enough time to withdraw, or at least that's what he had said yesterday. All uh, French as well as Afghans who helped France uh, leave the country. Um, I've got to press you on this because uh, last week you were very thoughtful about, um, you know, we we did coordinate this with allies and partners and allies and partners uh, were equally Pollyanna, perhaps. Right. I mean, Dove pointed out rightfully that, you know, you, you, there are many people who would say don't trust Ashraf Ghani as far as you could throw him uh, without any disrespect to him. Uh, and ultimately, his assurances and and asks uh, were, should not have been paid attention to. I have talked to senior people in the administration and overseas who've said, look, we also thought if this would not unravel as quickly. And so we all thought we had time. I, th I think this is like a little bit of a shipboard collision thing. You're, you know, on constant bearing, decreasing range. It, it's not a black swan at that point. It's a, it's a gray rhino. It was coming at you and smacked you in the head anyway. Um, the concern that Europeans have is that we are unilateralist and fundamentally somehow unreliable. Heather Conley, our mutual friend from CSIS has said this before, that it's the Bush administration, Obama administration, Trump administration, and everybody was looking for Biden to be different. And now they're beginning to see evidence that plays into their narrative that the Americans are simply unilateralist all the time. I mean, I would point out the United States has pretty been pretty unilateralist uh, with Europe, I think, pretty much since the end of World War II, in terms of us being the guys who dictate uh, sort of terms and the nature of the debate and, and, and sort of press our allies and uh, to do more. How do you think this plays into the debate? Is this a legitimate feeling? And if it's a legitimate feeling, what does this administration have to do to change the vector? Because we are saying we're back. Saying we're back means um, that folks don't end up feeling that way, even if you are being unilateralist, if you know what I mean. Well, thanks, Fago. I, I would say that, you know, we're back. Uh, what does that mean? It means different things to different people. And a lot of it means... We're back vis-a-vis -vis what Donald Trump, his approach. In other words, uh, we're back, meaning we're not Donald Trump. And so that's kind of the basic meaning for that, that expression. But I think from that point on, um, everyone's got a different read on what does that mean. And frankly, what you said about the U.S. being unilateral, you're right. We've always been that way. We have not been so great on consultations. And what I said last 
last week. I don't want that to be misinterpreted. I got some comments back myself uh, from some of your listeners about that. And I, I think there were some probably some last minute consultations or not even consultations, notifications is a better term. I think in the 11th hour, as things were collapsing, we talked to the major allies and to the section and, and just informed them of what we were going to be doing and wishing them luck. You know, I think there was probably more uh, coordination and consultation on the ground. Uh, but I think in terms of the kind of consultations allies are expecting and allies have always wanted, I don't think we did such a great job on that last week. And, and But it goes back, frankly, to what you said, Vago, which is... Uh, um, we, we try hard to consult. We end up doing more notification than we do consulting. Um, and Biden um, has, is, is, is in that same spot. I think it would be wrong though to look on this as an example of how good or not our consultations slash notifications are. This, this crisis in Kabul, this thing, this thing blew up on everyone. And I think, I, think that, I think we can't look on that as a symbol of, well, this is how it's gonna be from now on. That was a one, hopefully such a one-off unique crisis situation that I don't think I would draw conclusions about how well or not the Biden administration works with allies. Uh, I, think, I think we've got to be concerned about that from here on out to take care of that narrative that you are hearing in allied capitals. And a lot of times that narrative is connected to the view that Europe needs to really embrace strategic autonomy and Europe really needs to go and, 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 and be quite serious and put money towards building a unique European capability so that if the United States wants to pull back from uh, further evacuations, Europe would be able to do it itself. But this situation in Kabul showed that, um, that there is a, that, that dependency that Europe has on the United States um, and militarily to handle situations like this, that dependency is still there. Uh, that, that, those evacuations and the Germans and the French and the Brits, just to name three, Canada was in there, the Dutch, they all did a tremendous job and they should not be slighted at all on what they did. But they will admit that they were dependent on the United States at the same time to hold the airport and to do the things that they could not do. So the narrative that we need to worry about going forward in terms of our allies is this narrative of, of uh, we are not Donald Trump. We are back. We're going to try to do better in terms of consultations on, on, and that type of thing and working with allies, not throwing rocks at allies. But I think we have to... Uh, take on the narrative of Europe going in alone and saying, we understand the need for Europe to do that. And we want Europe to develop their military capability to be able to do things if the US chooses not to be involved. We want that to happen, but they need to get serious about it. They need to put money and capability towards it. There's been a lot of talk since the early nineties on this. Uh, and I think we're seeing once again that, um, uh, that if Europe wants to indeed be able to stand on its own two feet, uh, and if they want to embrace strategic autonomy and they want to use Kabul as an example, then they've got a lot of work to do um, ahead to, uh, to be able to truly be a European pillar and not so dependent on the United States. Um, I, I, I think you uh, sort of hit the nail on the head. I want to bring Patrick into the discussion now uh, because you've, you've been uh, patiently waiting. Um, you know, you, you gave us, Patrick, an assessment uh, last week on how Asian capitals 
uh, were looking at this. And I guess the question I would ask is, the most important audience really is in Asia for this. And indeed, one of the motivators for the president's actions is to resolve something that he senses is going nowhere and consuming bandwidth and attention um, and focusing it on China, which he views as a much higher uh, national interest uh, at this point, that we have figured out how to fight terrorism from afar, even if we have lost a certain degree of granular intelligence in Afghanistan, the United States is engaged globally conducting missions as we speak that gain no attention and ultimately are, are holding to account people who would wish to do us harm. The concern more broadly isn't that we will show up. The concern by some is we will show up and goon everything up. What what are what are you hearing from folks in Asia? What are their concerns, or is it actually, as as some have put it, and as you put it, this is a sign that actually they are serious about Asia? I mean, what what are they getting right? What are they getting wrong? And again, a uh, little bit similar to what I asked you last week, what do they have to do to make sure they get it right with this absolutely critical audience that has China in the neighborhood pulling all of its levers to? Uh, undermine American credibility and leadership. Well, Vago, first, just to state the obvious that we live in a world of complex and multiple threats, and uh, it's not all about uh, even major power competition. But in Asia Pacific in general, most capitals, most officials and experts are still going to be assessing U.S. policy going forward after this tragedy in Afghanistan, looking for empirical evidence that there are more resources being shifted to actually deal with uh, a rising China challenge. And that will include shifting some of those resources toward platforms, but also obviously making sure that the intelligence community is able to start to adapt to how they're going to do business, not just for major power competition, but also for the continuing and enduring counterterrorism missions. Um, secondly, they're going to look for the consultation that clearly was not uh, adequate, whether it was in Europe or in Asia Pacific. There needs to be a deeper level of trust and coordination of policy uh, on these issues and on other issues, um, especially as you start to think about the China challenge in Asia. Um, thirdly, there's going to need to be um, some success um, on the part of the, the Biden administration. I think this is your point, Vago, which is the United States doesn't just need to show up. That's, that's, that gets you in the door and a seat at the table, but you have to show competence and that you are solving problems. You're not creating them. That's why it continues to be important that the United States go forward and help vaccinate the region and the world uh, among uh, other tasks like maintaining deterrence and making sure that our capacity uh, building programs actually help our allies and partners in ways that they can uh, see in concrete uh, evidence of that success. Um, all of these and other um, sort of factors are going to be part of the assessment of our allies and partners in the Asia Pacific about whether the United States is this weary, you know, world policeman, as I read about in the uh, Nikkei Asia, you know, I've been reading this since I was, you know, following the Vietnam War as a child, um, we've gone and, and done so many things in the world. Um, we're not just a weary policeman. We are a, a global power, and we're going to continue to be a global power. Um, but we still need smart strategies. And here I just end on the point that uh, Tom Nichols wrote, I thought, eloquently in, in the, the Atlantic magazine, um, you know, that the Afghan 
uh, withdrawal is a bungled mess, but that doesn't mean it's not uh, in advance of what can be the right strategy of aligning our ends and means uh, to deal with counterterrorism in a smarter way, but still having to deal with it because it has all the complexities that we heard from Dove, you know, the connections, uh, the intricacies, uh, the, you know, the, the murkiness of who's behind what. Uh, and at the same time, we're going to have to deal with an increasingly competitive China because this is the final point that whatever happens to us with our tragedy in Afghanistan, as we look at the, the deaths and, and casualties um, and we mourn, uh, you know, the competition with China is not slowing down. China is not going to stop spending on missiles, on hypersonic uh, capabilities, on cyber, on space, on naval platforms and sea and air. Um, all of that will continue. Um, so we're going to have to do all of this going forward, and we're going to need those allies. So we're going to have to show that we're willing to spend resources. We want to work more closely with them. We're going to work on smarter strategy, um, and we're going to we're going to be able to balance uh, these competing demands that are both major power competition, our non-state actors, our you know state-sponsored terrorism in some cases, still dealing with the fact that China and Russia and Iran are going to do a major naval exercise. Those things are not going away. They're going to continue to be challenging the post-World War II order. Um, I uh, want to go to Dove because Dove's got another three minutes before he turns into a pumpkin. But to your point, Patrick, we also need to get all of the uh, political appointees into the State Department. Uh, Ted Cruz uh, still has holds on pretty much all of the key people, whether for refugees or anything else that would be required in a situation like this. So we are kind of hamstringing our own ability to act. And, and you could argue that there's a lot of cynicism associated with uh, with 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 doing that, you know, as a, as a Republican friend of mine was was very discharitable to uh, Senator Cruz, suggesting he get a Taliban Medal of Honor and a one way uh, ticket to Kabul uh, from from his standpoint. Uh, Dove, talk to us a little bit. I know you've got to go talk to us about the meeting between uh, Naftali Bennett, the Israeli prime minister uh, and Joe Biden. Great story in The New York Times about this, about the differences, how Israeli intelligence doesn't and, and Israelis don't trust Biden. Uh, and that's affected the intelligence relationship. Uh, certainly talking about both East Jerusalem and housing construction. Bennett is uh, unapologetic for authorizing construction uh, there as somebody who doesn't believe in a two-state solution. And then second, uh, that Israel remains wary of the United States uh, and uh, renegotiating the Iran nuclear deal, and that Israel is going to maintain a freedom of action um, as it has for the last couple of weeks, a couple of years, with some extraordinary uh, intelligence operations conducted uh, in Iran. Uh, talk to us about where this critically important relationship stands and is going to go. Well, first of all, uh, I totally align myself with what Patrick said. He he expanded to a great uh, extent what I had said at the outset of this uh, uh, this uh, program uh, on Israel. Uh, look, the Israelis uh, are watching what's happened in Afghanistan. And as I mentioned, uh, they're also uh, very uneasy there. It's not so much that they're uneasy about Biden. Um, the, the latest Chicago uh, Council on Foreign Relations poll shows that, 37, that only 37% of Americans now see Israel as an ally. Um, you know, the, the Irish used to say, uh, Sinn Féin, ourselves alone. And I think the Israelis feel that way too. Uh, most people forget that one of the reasons Israel came into being is because Jews decided that the world didn't give a shit about them when they were being killed off and were trying to escape Europe. 
So these people are, are in Israel are looking at the world in a very different way than perhaps a lot of people outside Israel look at the situation. So that's number one, whether now Biden's always been a friend of Israel. Uh, on the other hand, um, the intelligence situation is pretty much as you laid it out to be. Uh, they are concerned. Uh, after all, their supposed good friend Trump leaked intelligence information. They're concerned that there are people in this administration who would leak what they're trying to do. And so they will not uh, necessarily give all the one thing that the United States doesn't seem to have in, in Iran, but that they do, which is human intelligence. Um, they're going to be very, very uneasy about uh, working with uh, an administration uh, about whom they are not totally comfortable, uh, which brings me to the Iran deal. The person leading the Iran deal, Rob Malley, who happens to be a guy I'm friendly with, uh, has always been very critical of Israel. And the Israelis are, are they're ultra sensitive about this to the point where they don't tolerate any criticism, even for the American Jewish community. Uh, which they should, by the way, and, and which I think is completely misplaced. But there we are. Uh, and then you've got Bennett having to try to satisfy uh, a government that was put together basically by everybody who couldn't stand Netanyahu, who, by, who is still leader of the opposition and is trying to hammer uh, Bennett and his team as much as possible. So on the one hand, he expands settlements. On the other hand, he's got to satisfy the first ever Arab member of, a, of an Israeli government uh, at the cabinet level by uh, going after crime in, in Arab communities in Israel uh, and trying somehow to walk through this minefield that uh, continues to grow because Netanyahu continues to sell mines. So he wants to improve relations with the United States. His number two, who really owns uh, the power in that government, uh, Mr. Lapid, who's the foreign minister, is determined to improve relations with the United States, but none of them uh, is entirely comfortable with the the uh, with where the United States stands. Uh, and Afghanistan has not made it easier. And I think it's going to take work on both sides to somehow restore the relationship, because there are lots of voices in Israel, and not just from the extreme right, that are saying. We just can't trust these guys anymore. We need to work more with the Arabs. And the Arabs are very nervous as well. Uh, Mohammed bin Salman's brother was just in Moscow. That should tell you something. I think that the dividing point in the Israeli mindset was building the wall. Um, before then, there was, and during the bombing campaigns, uh, there was this sense of vulnerability, of fatigue. And then after the wall was this sort of sense of much greater safety and sort of creating the bubble. Uh, the bubble was a safer bubble. And, and I think that that then changed the dynamic situation uh, considerably, but obviously uh, something we can discuss in greater detail later. Dove, thanks very, very much. Really appreciate it. Uh, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Take care. Cervello, you have been most patient of all uh, waiting to the very end of this, and I uh, appreciate it. And I want to pose some other questions to the rest of the team in, in, in just a moment. But I wanted to get your sense in terms of the messaging week for the administration. A whole series of factors, right? Modern media trends are playing into this of uh, sort of reporters as, as celebrity. Uh, then there is social media, right? I mean, World War II ended very, very badly. And there were, you know, we tend to gild World War II. There were incredible recriminations and reprisals uh, at the end of the war, uh, where a lot of scores were, were settled by partisans and even regular uh, citizens who, you know, looked at their neighbors as collaborators, or they took 
something for me, or they had relationships and children with the occupiers uh, at, at the end of the day. The president has been working uh, you know, on this message of of candor and emoting, he did that yesterday. Uh, and you know, without any disrespect to uh, the administration's very, very able public relations uh, and public affairs teams, uh, in the form of Jen Psaki and uh, John Kirby and others, uh, whom we we consider uh, friends and professional colleagues, is it a mistake to follow up? First, how how are they doing on messaging? The second thing is, is it a mistake to follow up an emotive? Uh, an emotional president with sort of a more clinical press conference? I mean, wouldn't it be better just to let the president speak for himself and then Michael and anybody else to try to get your guy's sense on this from a, from a messaging standpoint and what the administration has to do to do a better job? Effectively, it's confronted with lots of lemons if it's possible to actually start generating industrial grade lemonade. So I think the conversation that we've had thus far really um, is emblematic of the challenge that uh, the administration, any administration faces in today's uh, information environment. I'll spare you the, the wonky you know, view of how hard it is to get a message out, no matter what the message is. But I mean, if you look at just the issues that we covered in the audiences that, that are invested in this, there's the domestic audience, there's the domestic political um, audience. There's the um, you know the European audience and the allies that we're working with in Afghanistan. There's the Asian audience and and the folks that we hope to work with on China. There's um, potential uh, you know allies um, and partners that we want to keep with us or dissuade from uh, from breaking away with us. Um, and, and so what you're seeing is is you're seeing an attempt by a very savvy. Uh, political and savvy uh, communication group trying to be all things to all people. I, I get that. I, I just, I think that the more that they try to be all things to all people, the, the greater difficulty that they're going to have in finding the, the key messages and getting those key messages to resonate with the audiences that matter um, at, at the time. And, and I think you saw that yesterday. Um, President Biden, for me, as a, as a communicator and as an American right now, is the best spokesperson that this administration has. Um, regardless of what you think of him, he, he comes off as very genuine, very sincere. He's not over uh, polished, um, but he can think on his feet. I, my advice and with, without throwing rocks, my, my advice would be, uh, you know, I wouldn't follow him up with a professional communicator. Um, he would be the really the first and last word. I would continue to work the reporters and uh, you, you know off camera. But in an age of you, you know paid spokesmodels that stand up and ask hack type questions, regardless of what side of the aisle their their uh, media organization is from, just for the soundbite or just to poke at the the politician or spokesperson at the at the podium. I wouldn't play into that game. Um, I, I would really make the president the centerpiece of uh, of the effort for for good or for bad. Um, I would I would point out that uh, John Kirby very thoughtfully has always said, right, in, in this interconnected media age, there are no multiple audiences. When you you know there was a time when you could give one message internally, another message externally. This is a domestic message. This is a foreign message. And now everybody is reading and seeing all of this, right? And and so you you have to be integrated. Uh, and consistent in how you uh, address all of this. Otherwise, you, you know, you you um, let hairs running. V very quickly, I want to kind of go around the horn on, on that uh, messaging thing and get everybody's sense on that. My Michael, how do you see this as a longtime political uh, operator and animal 
and I would say, right, I mean, one time a pot potential member of Congress, uh, and I think you would have done an extraordinary job as an august member uh, of, of, the, of the New Jersey delegation. How do you uh, sense this? And then, Jim, get your sense and Patrick, yours, uh, in, in terms of how it is the administration, what they're doing right, what they should be doing differently in terms of how they message this, because at the end of the day, the, the message is what's the people are drawing their own conclusions and you need to actively and more consistently message if you want everybody to go with you and end up where you want them to be as opposed to where they may end up or where they may be steered. As far as yesterday's um, is concerned that you, you and Chris were just talking about, I'll give the president a little more of the benefit of the doubt here. I, I agree with you, but I also think that he's trying to show that they are not running away from this and they're being accessible and answering questions. So, uh, you know, after his um, remarks yesterday, he did take questions and Jim Pisaki was really up there at the podium for a very long time. So I think that they're, you know, trying to show that they're not trying to run away from it. Uh, but I don't think the media is going to give them uh, any, any break on that. But I do think, again, my expertise is more on the political side, not on the PR side. I mean, just, just Google me and you'll see. Uh, but, um, you know, if you um, look at the um, on the political side, I think that their messaging is 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 suffering and it has been for a long time. And frankly, going back to the presidential campaign, Biden was not good, uh, especially on the House side of courting people and asking for support and developing relationships. I talked to countless House members who were considering endorsing Cory Booker, uh, Buttigieg, others. And I'm like, wait, what, what, like, has Biden called you? And all of them, all of them would say to me, no, he is not to ask for their support. And I see it now with his administration. The folks on the Hill on the House side they're talking to are really more of the progressives, but they're not talking to a lot of the committee chairmen they need to be talking to and a lot of the run-of-mill members to gain their support and make them feel part of the team uh, and have supporters in reserve. I mean, even look at this, this you know, this obviously this Afghan crisis. I mean, you have people like Adam Schiff out there uh, criticizing the president and defending the intelligence community, saying this was not an intelligence failure. Uh, it was really more of a failure of the implementation. Of the administration. So, and I also think that, that the president is um, to some degree being compared to Trump because of his stubbornness on uh, his decision here on the withdrawal and not admitting mistakes uh, quick enough. Uh, so, I think that those are all problems for them that are hard to pivot now, but you know, we still have a long way to go. And I think he needs to figure out how he's going to pivot. The, the president is very much a creature of the Senate still. Uh, exactly. And it's funny, you know. I, I was joking with my wife about this the other day because she worked uh, in the Senate for years and how certain Senate staff would refer to House members as the gum on the bottom of their shoe. Um, so there is that disdain. <laughs> I know. I know exactly who said that, by the way. But that's beside, that's beside <laughs> yeah. the point. So, you know, there's this lack of recognition uh, that the House has, you know, pretty much just as much power as the Senate, except when it comes to confirmations and, and treaties. And frankly, I think the same could be said about what Moulton and Meyer did by going over because Congress is a co-equal branch of government and does need to conduct uh, oversight. And I'm you know, surprised by this lack of understanding by the Biden administration. But you know, again, this administration is only eight months old and, and still ha has time to pivot. Uh, that's that's right. And it's in it, it's in its infancy, but they grow. They grow so fast. Um, uh, Jim, uh, give me uh, your sense, Patrick, yours uh, in terms of sort of next steps. Right. I mean, especially in the wake of uh, the attacks and, and the messages. Right. I mean, at the end, uh, there are those who say that uh, jihadist groups around the world are have been empowered, not just by the Taliban's uh, return to power, but also, um, you know, clearly in the wake of what was a successful and highly deadly uh, attack, right? I mean, it, it doesn't mean 
it doesn't mean that they're necessarily winning the war, right? You can lose all the battles and still win the war. Uh, ultimately, we, we showed that almost with the Revolutionary War. But, you know, I, I want to get both of your senses in terms of messaging and what the administration has to do better, uh, because obviously their success is ultimately our success, no matter who's sitting in the Oval Office. Well, what I would say about messaging is not necessarily on the domestic U.S. side. I leave that to others, but I am continuing to hear as late as this morning from allies that the um, uh, they are still not able to make get calls into the Secretary of Defense. Uh, and that's been a complaint for a long time now, ever since the beginning of the administration, frankly. A lot that's understandable. This is a busy administration, particularly now. Uh, but I think there is a there's a problem with communications at the cabinet level, certainly, um, between the secretary and uh, and his counterparts at, just at NATO, or NATO and partners. And I think if we're going to talk about the, the um, talk about the outreach or talk about the message, uh, you know, there's a there's a public message, but there's a very important private message that is ex that is exchanged in these uh, telephone calls or bilateral meetings. And I think uh, I think we've got to see if they can make time in the SecDef front office for these telephone calls to take place just to talk about, OK, what are next steps? Just to talk about what happened, uh, just to um, to uh, to try to begin to have a relationship with some of these counterparts that certainly are not there now. Now, that's what I've heard from uh, the allies. And I've that's the very consistent message. Uh, I'm sure SecDef's front office will say something different, maybe. But uh, but I think I think that's something that we need to really do. Uh, it's more than going to defense ministerials at NATO. It's more than uh, you know. I mean, I, I know the secretary visited some capitals in in uh, Europe, which was great. But I think if we're talking about um, we're talking about what the message should be to allies uh, to deal with this narrative. A lot of that is done through phone calls and through one-on-one, uh, -on -one, and I think we've got to uh, make room for that. Um, I, I also, uh, there is a perception that uh, the administration is shielding, right? I mean, we've seen a lot of Tony Blinken. We really haven't seen a lot of uh, Secretary Austin, uh, ultimately, uh, in, in part because for all of his capabilities, Secretary Austin uh, is said not to be, you know, as as comfortable uh, in 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 that kind uh, of uh, environment. And everybody manages and leads uh, in a different different way. Patrick, and then uh, Chris, you get the last point before we end it for the week. Go ahead. And Vago, on that, I think uh, principles are heard over spokespersons. And so when General McKenzie was addressing uh, the tragedy, uh, I think he was extremely effective. Uh, and authoritative. And that's very different. And no disrespect to, to Kirby as a, a spokesperson. He's a very good one for that role. Uh, same thing at the White House. The president uh, is what matters uh, when he speaks. Um, and people discount what uh, even a, a very able spokesperson like Jen Psaki uh, says. That's just the way it, it is. Um, secondly, is Jim's point about access from allies, being able to reach the president, being able to reach the cabinet members, um, is indeed the mark from which they um, sort of determine uh, whether they trust and are, and are getting um, the value that they think they deserve as an ally of the United States. So it's very important for us to try to maintain that, however difficult that is, on the principles. We just had the vice president, obviously, in Vietnam and Singapore. The trip went very well, but it, it was completely overshadowed by the events in Afghanistan. 
And as the vice president, not steeped in Southeast Asia, her words were somewhat discounted uh, in the region. And so uh, all the more reason why we need to have those even second level uh, of, of members uh, confirmed and out there, like people like Dan Crittenbrink, an ambassador who's been waiting to be the assistant secretary for the Asia Pacific. And there's no reason to hold on that at all. Um, finally, it comes down to strategy. Um, and in a period when fear and anger are impeding clear thinking, it's really tough to talk about long-term strategy. And so we are doing crisis management at the moment. Um, and we have to get through this period, but eventually we're gonna need to come back and have a clear articulation about our strategy, uh, about how we manage these uh, multiple threats and risks with allies and partners. Chris, uh, let me give you the last word. Last week, I, I said um, good policy makes for good PR. And, and I mean, I, I would connect to what uh, Jim said and to what um, what Patrick said. I mean, you know, whether that's good strategy makes good PR or good good performance makes for good PR. But but right now, um, the administration is kind of fighting against it itself and the expectations that it set both at home and abroad. You know, we heard all of this prior to. Um, them taking office, that these were the, the smart folks, that these were the professionals, that America's back. I mean, all these things are, are the ghosts that, that they're fighting in, in the handling of, of this crisis. And I think are what people are ultimately going to judge them, both rhetorically um, from, a, from a narrative standpoint and from a performance standpoint, um, and, and are going to shape how people think about them in, in, in the future. I mean, you, you and I spoke throughout the week about I think it's a fair question to ask that if they're unable to handle this crisis or or based upon the performance of this crisis, um, you, you know, I think it's completely fair to to extrapolate out how they may handle um, events in the future, or, or more importantly, how the United States would handle uh, uh, events in the future. So, um, the, you know, as you consider the narrative and as you consider the um, the effectiveness of the communication. I think it's fair not just to look at um, how it's being done in Afghanistan, but I think, you know, there's a lot of people that like to look backwards at history. I think in this case, it is completely fair to kind of extrapolate out and, and make some conclusions on how they may or may not handle events in the future um, and then position yourself or your positions based on that. That's the real that, that's the real, um, I think, conundrum for them is, yes, they have to navigate their way through this. Yes, they have to deal with the, the problems of today, but they all everything that they do today is going to set the conditions for how they deal with all these complex issues that our panel talked about today. That, that's what I'm particularly worried about. Uh, I think uh, the administration uh, has a big challenge on its hands to communicate, communicate clearly. This is no criticism on the terrific job that uh, his team is doing. I think uh, they deserve a lot of credit for at least being open, being available, um, no matter what, uh, you know, uh, John and Jen are at the podium uh, and are fielding questions from uh, even uh, I mean, the president called on you know, he joked a little bit, uh, you know, the, uh, my, my favorite person uh, when he uh, directed the, the question. Let me just ask one last question about the notebook when the president put his head down on the notebook. And that has become a meme. You know, my sense of it was, dear God, give me the strength not to tell the next person who asks me a dumb question to go screw himself. Uh, but I, I don't think that was it. I mean, is there, right? I mean, people are talking about Carter moment. Uh, 
this is a Carter moment. I'm sort of always interested why it's not called a Reagan moment because we had Lebanon or a Ford moment because we had Saigon, any one of a number of other moments. Every administration has bad moments, uh, ultimately. Um, you know, 9-11 happened, and I think we can conclude there were a lot of mistakes and a lot of missed signs for 9-11 to happen. We rallied to the flag in that instance, right? What did you guys make of that image very, very, very quickly? Because I'm sort of curious about it, how that's become kind of a real big talking point on on one side of, of this discussion. I think people saw what they wanted to see in that, right? I mean, if you're naturally critical of Biden and if you are looking to find uh, critique or criticism, I, I think you saw that as a, a Carter moment, as embodying weakness. I think if you're objective or if you're a supporter of the president, you saw it as exasperation, a long day, maybe some annoyance with the stupid questions that you were getting asked from, um, you know, silly reporters. This is the information environment that we, we live in. You know, re reality is in the, uh, the eyes of the audience. And uh, obviously he is somebody who uh, does wear uh, emotion on his sleeve. Patrick, any, any last minute thoughts before we part? I agree with Chris on this. Uh, if this indeed imperils the president's agenda, um, then we'll look back at this moment and say, yeah, it was like a Carter moment. But if it doesn't, uh, it'll be forgotten. Michael, do you, did you have anything you wanted to add? I agree with Chris. People are going to see what they want to see uh, in that. Uh, and look, to some degree, it's a stark comparison from the prior administration because Biden is showing that he's got empathy. Uh, and, you know, this is a big job. He's got the weight of the world on his shoulders. And uh, the, these decisions aren't easy and the consequences aren't easy, but he's not running from them. Um, so I don't really I don't see anything negative in that picture from yesterday. Um, I, I, I also thought it was interesting that he said that, look, this is all me. Right. I think pretty much says uh, what what you needed to say uh, as as the, the leader, um, although there is a little for some people's taste, right, a little bit too much. You know, it, it, it wasn't my fault and, and this, that and the other thing. But ultimately, there is a sense that he, that he is the guy ultimately uh, in charge and at least an acknowledgement of that. Everybody, thanks very, very much. Really appreciate it. Uh, absolute pleasure as always. Have a great weekend, a great week and look forward to having you guys back on again next week. Thanks a lot. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.